Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. For the families with us on this anniversary, we know that not a single day goes by when you don't think about the loved one stolen from your life. Today, our entire nation grieves with you. And with every family of those 2,977 innocent souls who were murdered by terrorists 16 years ago. Each family here today represents a son or daughter, a sister or brother, a mother or father who was taken from you on that terrible, terrible day. But no force on earth can ever take away your memories, diminish your love, or break your will to endure and carry on and go forward. Though we can never erase your pain or bring back those you lost, we can honor their sacrifice by pledging our resolve to do whatever we must to keep our people safe. That was President Trump earlier today speaking on the uh, 16th anniversary of the horrific terrorist attack on U.S. soil on 9-11. And I wanted to take some time today before I get into all of the news cycle. And uh, Buck Sexton here back with all of you after uh, an absence on on Friday. Very pleased to be joining you here. I wanted to spend some time with you, though, on the remembrance of... September 11th, the remembrance of the victims, almost 3,000 of our own who were killed that day, a remembrance of the heroes, those who ran into the towers, those who took on the terrorists on Flight 93 and likely prevented what would have been the destruction of the Capitol building and could have killed dozens, perhaps hundreds more people if the terrorists on Flight 93 had not been met with force and resolve uh, by those individuals who will always be immortalized with the line, let's roll. And then remembrance of just what it is that happened that day, that this was not, and I know this comes at a time when the nation is reeling from multiple natural disasters, but 9-11 was not a natural disaster. And I find that much of the reportage around it at this point has a curious habit of leaving out that it was a day that we were hit by Islamic jihadists who seek our destruction and had declared war on us years before and were finally able to pull off a mass casualty terrorist attack, a a sneak attack on a peaceful city um, on what was by all accounts, an otherwise tranquil and, in fact, beautiful day here in New York City until the nightmare began. 
Uh, I remember the day well, and I, I think it's important for all of us to remember exactly what it was we were doing then, to take ourselves back into that mentality and understanding of, and to have a greater understanding of the effect that this has had on our time. 9-11 was an era-defining moment. It changed uh, the way we view the security of this country. It uh, led to one immediate foreign war and then another war on top of that, as well as countless counterterrorism operations around the world in all kinds of environments and countries from our closest allies and the most westernized nations to the most far-flung, barren, deserted, hostile territories imaginable. Uh, 9-11 set off that that series of events. Um, it certainly changed my life. I sit here as uh, somebody who can't think about the trajectory of his life without having 9-11 inserted in the timeline. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. I would never have joined the CIA. I would never have been an officer in the Central Intelligence Agency if it had not been for 9-11. I would not have found myself at various times in uh, war zones, uh, in places that when you grow up in New York City, it generally doesn't dawn on you that you could find yourself outside the wire in hostile territory and having to be prepared to defend yourself with force. Um, that's not something you think about as a kid growing up in New York or anywhere, I think, for that matter. It's just not something that occurs to you until all of a sudden it becomes a reality. Um, I was in college when 9-11 happened. I was, I remember it very well. I was on my way to uh, a Shakespeare class. In an interesting twist of fate, I was um, I had just started my, I guess it was my first or my second week of Arabic class. I had had interest in the Middle East since before college and in fact had thought about going to a few different schools that had specific Near Eastern studies programs so that I could spend a lot of my time on Arabic. And at first Amherst didn't even have Arabic as an offering in school, but I thought I had this feeling. I won't pretend that it was a premonition or anything, but I had this feeling the Middle East would be very important, that the geopolitical locus of action had moved from the Soviet Union in that orbit to the Middle East and would stay there for some time. And whether for commercial, that was really what I was thinking of, for, for commercial reasons, it would be useful to have a background and maybe even some language skills uh, that would be applicable in the Mideast. So I was one of the few people who had already uh, started to move down that pathway and had already taken a couple of Arabic classes when this happened. I was on my way to a class, Shakespeare class up at Amherst College. It was just as it was in New York City, an absolutely almost impossibly gorgeous morning. I mean, the weather was, was perfect. I just remember it well. I remember walking into class and uh, the professor, I believe his name was Professor Sofield, stopped this. This was in a big auditorium with, well, big for Amherst at least, with about a hundred or so students in it. And he said that a plane has hit the World Trade Center. And I, I think that we should cancel class and you should um, check and make sure that I know some of you have family in New York City. You should check and check and make sure that everyone is okay. And this was very early on, right? He had just 
I assume gotten this by word of mouth. And I thought, as I know a vast majority of the accounts that I have read and, and heard from people firsthand, that when I when I first when this was first mentioned, I assumed that it was a a propeller plane, uh, maybe a few people veered off course, got caught in some freak situation that ended up, and you know, very sad for a, for the number of people that would have been uh, killed in the incident, but that it was an accident. I remember going back to my room, and I was. Uh, I had a, a TV then, which on my floor was unusual. Most of the students didn't necessarily have cable and TV in their room. I did. And I turned on the TV and I saw that gaping hole and the gaping holes, I should say. And I remember students. Uh, and as soon as you saw what was going on, as soon as the, the visuals were there, you couldn't help but feel like, oh, my God, we are under attack. You were there was an understanding and it hit you all at once. And I was there surrounded by some of my closest friends. Uh, in fact, I saw one of them just over the weekend in Los Angeles who was with me as we were watching the towers smoldering 16 years ago. Doesn't feel like 16 years ago. And I saw the towers go down. And I remember saying aloud, we're going to war. And people kind of, my friends around me kind of looked at me for a second and then kept watching it. But I just, it's one of those thoughts that comes into your mind that it had never occurred to me before then that we would find ourselves in the midst of a war. Never mind that I would actually, in my own small and insignificant way, try to be a part of multiple war efforts in a few years. Um, I went right into the CIA out of college. I am part of what I think could be aptly described as the 9 11 generation. It was because of 9-11 that this conception that my peer group age-wise, I think, had that American dominance, superiority, and the Pax Americana, the peace that the world was enjoying because of this incredible country that I really do love. I don't know if people all over the world love their country. I actually love America. Um, it is a, a major figure, a character in my life. And, you know, outside of my immediate family, I think America as a character in my life has had the biggest impact on me and my thinking. Um, it is a place that once it is threatened, I think we all had a sense that how just how precious this country was came into uh, a stark relief. We were we recognized that this was not a forever situation. That an America that was the superpower, the uniter, and the good guys as the most powerful force in the world was not inevitable. And without vigilance, without people who were willing to yes, run up the stairs, to uh, show up on the scene, to tackle terrorists in a in a plane that had been hijacked and then later on a few million Americans to put on their country's uniform and go overseas and take the fight to the enemy without all of that it would be for naught right this country wouldn't this country would not continue as is that we do we did have enemies who had our destruction on their minds not some uh, treaty in mind, not some concessions, not a piece of territory. 9-11 was the day that we were reminded that there is not just evil in this world, but evil that will visit us in our own homes, in our own places of work, and try to 
kill as many of our loved ones as possible. And that we do need rough men and women ready to stand and do violence on our behalf against those individuals. That this was a dangerous world. That we would not be in perpetuity sitting atop the rest of uh, the rest of the nations uh, of the world and be able to play peacemaker when we want to, but sleep soundly at night. We would not sleep soundly at night until we face that enemy, and it, it changed the course of my life. I know for many of you listening, it changed the course of your life as well. Many of you have family members, have um, your uh, family members who have served. Some of you listening probably have family members who served and were wounded, or perhaps even lost a loved one in the fight against what we call the war on terror, but what is, in fact, the war on uh, jihadism or radical Islam. And I, I wish that there was a greater clarity in that discussion um, as well. But that's a topic that we will continue to hit on here on the show. Uh, I do also recall just one, a couple more thoughts from that day. And, and then I, I will get to every, all, all the news from today. I know there's a, as Florida has been battered by a Hurricane Irma. And there was the Bannon interview from the weekend. It's very interesting. A lot of political stuff on climate change. We'll talk about all of the important news stories I will get to, but a few more thoughts on the uh, remembrance of 9-11. And I also would invite any of you who have thoughts on what 9-11 means to you or what uh, what this day signifies for you, what it brings up, what where you were that day, anything, what, whatever it is that comes to mind for you as we uh, promise to never forget um, 844-900-BUCK is the number, 844-900-2825. Um, I want to hear what you think about this, if you would like to share. I also know that a lot of this can be very private for people and that they don't necessarily want to call and talk about their uh, moments of dread that day. Or for some, it's even too much to watch the video footage. I had thought about starting today with a montage of sound, uh, a, an introduction to to bring us into the moment. But I thought, no, I'd rather just share my thoughts with you, with uh, my friends across the country, uh, my fellow patriots who are listening to this broadcast, because I know that the painful memories of that day um, are something that we must also be on guard against in the sense that it can be too much for some. It can be too much for some to revisit the sounds and the sights of the plane striking the buildings and the phone calls made to loved ones. And so I, I made that decision consciously today. Um, but I will share some more thoughts on that when we come back from the break. Uh, and I invite you to share any of your thoughts on this. Like I said, we will get to my, all the politics and climate change. And by the third hour, I promise you, we will have moved on and uh, in our topics and will not be in, in so... Uh, well, in such a place, as you can tell, I, 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 my mind goes back to it and it is unusual for me to get thrown off by a topic, but sometimes it actually still, it still affects me. And I think about, uh, friends who then went on to serve and friends who were wounded and time in Walter Reed with them. And, you know, it all comes in together. Nine eleven sets all of that up in in my mind and uh it can be a lot it's a lot even a lot even here for somebody who does three hours a day of talking for a living america cannot be intimidated and those who try will soon join the long list of vanquished enemies 
who dare to test our metal. We are making plain to these savage killers that there is no dark corner beyond our reach, no sanctuary beyond our grasp, and nowhere to hide anywhere on this very large earth. A warning from President Trump to our enemies. And uh, as we remember 9-11 and what that means, what that day means for uh, for the history of, of the world, really. I mean, for this country and for each one of us individually and for our armed forces. But also that, that changed the course of world history. No question about it. And uh, it is one of the mo- it was, I think, the most momentous day of my lifetime. I don't think that's I don't think there's really much of a the only other day that perhaps could fit in the same category would be the fall of the Berlin Wall, maybe. But um, that's I, in many ways, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I think that you would have to say that um, you have to say that 9-11 had a greater impact on the trajectory of world history uh, right now. So a few things I remember from that day. And by the way, I see we have every we have all the lines in here. Uh, in the Freedom Hut lit up, and I appreciate that. Clearly, a lot of people want to talk about that day and what it means to them. And as we take calls, uh, please do note that if you've been trying to get in and you've been uh, unable to, uh, spots will open up on our lines here when we take some calls. So 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. I remember the president of Amherst College calling me, which was the only time that he ever did that, uh, to be sure, to ask me about my... I had an uncle who was in one of the, or worked, I should say, in one of the towers and worked for Aon Corporation. And Aon, I believe, after Cantor Fitzgerald, had the most people uh, who were killed that day, uh, Aon being a massive insurance company. And uh, he was okay. He was, in fact, not even in the tower when it happened, but uh, his colleagues, his friends, his assistant, they were they were, in fact, there. So it uh, it hit home. I, I remember also my parents, speaking to my parents that day, and the, the jets were flying overhead. And now we can think back to, well, within a few hours, it when they grounded all the planes, it felt like things were at least temporarily, from a security standpoint, under control. But we didn't know. You could have had multiple planned suicide bombings all i mean we were in many ways as a country from a security standpoint asleep at the wheel while al-qaeda was doing all kinds of things to get ready for that and many other plots i should note plots some of which were fortunately for us disrupted but we didn't know what was going to happen next and all we knew is that we had been hit and hit badly um so i want to get to your thoughts on the anniversary of 9-11, right after the break. All right, lines are lit here in the Freedom Hut. We have Mark in Pennsylvania. Uh, Mark, good to have you on the show, sir. How are you doing, Buck? I'm good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's a difficult day for for a lot of us. I I joined the Air Force in 99, so I was active duty when... When stuff went down, we were actually in the middle of a war game. Um, and uh, I had just gotten off shift and come home and uh, laid down. And my wife at the time had uh, woke me up and said, the plane just hit the World Trade Center. And 
I was like, well, that happens all the time. You're thinking about the World War II bomber hit the Empire State Building or whatever. And uh, But then I went, no, wait, I, this sounds like something I better get up for. So, you know, having not slept after a 14-hour shift, I got up and uh, got to the television just in time to see the second plane hit. And I knew we were at war. Yeah. I remember that same recognition. I, I was in college. I wasn't in the armed services. Um, what was it like in the days after as a, as a guy in the Air Force, Mark? Well, um, I, uh, my profession was a munitions systems specialist. Uh, we did, uh, we had to tear apart a lot of concrete bombs and um, load every single one of our bombers up with real bombs. We did about three weeks' worth of work in two days. Nobody slept. Nobody wanted to leave. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, well, Mark, man, I appreciate your service, and I appreciate you calling in. Thanks, man. Shield tie. Um, Alexis in Texas on the iHeart app. Oh, sorry, Alex in Texas on the iHeart app. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing all right, brother. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you for calling in. You're also a veteran. You were at Fort Hood. I was the great place. That's right. First Cavalry Division. So what yeah, happened that day? I, what do you remember? It was it was uh, it was intense. So we had just gotten back from a 45 day field exercise out in the Mojave Desert. I'm sure you're familiar with the National Training Center. I am indeed. <laughs> I know it well. <laughs> One of those wonderful environments. And so we had, we had just gotten back. And um, typically after a, a rotation out there, they tend to give you a long weekend, allow you to kind of you know rest, and recover, all that good stuff, and. So that four-day weekend was the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And our first day back at work was Tuesday, September the 11th. And that morning we had gotten up, gone to do some PT, uh, gone for a nice long run, and then uh, afterwards went back to the barracks to shower and change. And I was in my barracks room with my roommate, my buddy Neil, and I had the TV going. And we uh, they, would, they were just showing you know footage after the first plane hitting, and we were both sitting there thinking, well, that's awful strange. And as we were watching it live, the second plane hit, and it was very uh, it was surreal. At that moment, we both kind of looked at each other and knew that this was um, that this was simply too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence. And uh, you know, within a minute, if not you know. If not less, the CQ uh, NCO was coming around the barracks saying, "Hey, everybody outside, there's a, we got a formation. First sergeant wants to talk to everybody." And uh, you know, we went out there, and you know, top was out there, company CEO, our company commander was out there, and and they, we only had a small chunk of the company present at the time, and everybody else started trickling in, and they basically said, "Okay, everybody, go back and uh, back to your rooms, back home, pack your A bags and B bags. We don't know if we're going to be going somewhere here in the next couple of days." Uh, you know, it was a tremendous hustle and bustle of activity. And at that time, my father was still in the Army at that point. We had about four years of overlap. And he was actually at the Pentagon. He was TDY to the Pentagon when he got hit. And that was, I, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but my stepmother had called me up and she was, uh, she was in sort of a panic because she knew where he was. And, uh, we were worried that something had happened because we couldn't get a hold of him and we hadn't heard from him. And apparently where he was, he couldn't actually get an outbound call. He couldn't make one. And he eventually got a hold of us, let us know he was okay, and he was helping people out of there. 
um, within a short period of time. First, the 227 that hood was deployed. Um, then, of course, I ended up PCS into Germany where we supported the uh, efforts over in Afghanistan. And, uh, of course, shortly afterward, Iraq kicked off as well. But I tell you, the next 24, 48 hours after those planes hit the towers and the Pentagon and the one crashed in PA, it was, um, it was the, the base totally changed. The environment was, um, I mean, you could cut the, the, the air, the tension in, in, in the air with a knife. It was, it was that palpable. It was, um, you, know, you had roving Apache helicopters just circling the base at all times, waiting for something to, um, to come through the airspace so they could shoot it down. And we had uh, armored vehicles at the gates. Um, everybody was just ready to go. Uh, we didn't know where we were going at that time, but we wanted to go wherever it was that we had to go and kick the crap out of whatever it is that had to be taken out. Alex, I assume you knew a whole lot of folks, uh, a whole lot of your uh, brothers and sisters in uniform who went over to Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every, everybody was deploying. To, I mean, it, well, of course, in 2001, at the end of, of the of the year, you had people punching out and heading overseas. People left from the first 227 to go over to Afghanistan. Actually, one of our uh, one of our Apache pilots got shot down over there uh, in, in the beginning of the war. Um, it was it was a very intense time, um, and uh, it was exciting. I mean, it had a huge impact on my life. My, my whole family going back generations was military. So my dad and I had four years overlap. He actually swore me in when I joined. Uh, my youngest brother uh, just commissioned as a, as a lieutenant um, actually back in May of this year. Both grandfathers served. Both my mom and my stepmother had served. Um, and, you know, of course, I, I didn't get out until the end of 06. So we all, you know, we all knew people that had, that had gone over, you know, and it was, uh, it was, it was an interesting time. But it had a it had a huge impact on my life and the, the lives of uh, everyone I knew, especially those, you know, who were in uh, one one service or another, whether it was on the GS side, uh, uniform side. Um, it was it, it impacted everyone in a, in a pretty tremendous way. Absolutely. Well, look, Alex, I appreciate you uh, calling to share your, your uh, memories of that day, and, and also thank you for your service, sir. Alex, thank you very much. Um, let's take Scott in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Scott. Hey, Buck. How are you doing? I'm all right. You were um, on duty for American Airlines during 9-11? I was, sir. I was at the uh, SERO, which is the um, reservation center in Raleigh, in Cary, North Carolina. I uh, was monitoring the call and um, listened to Betty Ong carrying on about, you know, the buildings are low, we're too low, we're too low, and then everything went dead. Um, so you heard it in real You heard it in real time? Yes, sir. What were your thoughts when that happened? Did you, I mean, how, how, when did you know? As soon as it crashed, I knew we were at war. Well, as, as soon as it crashed, clearly. But before then, she called. Tell, tell me some more of the backstory here. I just know that you were on duty for American Airlines. But what, so, so what happened? You're sitting there, and you get what? Where does the call come from? What? What? What's the backstory? The call came from the um, into the reservation center from the plane. The pilot when the uh, flight attendants pick up, it goes to the first uh, reservation center as the sun rises and. We were basically the uh, reservation center where the calls came in at. We got both the calls on on both flights um, that came in. And uh, so, an American Airlines, yeah. one of the flight attendants called in to the res- when you were there on duty and listening to the call. Yes, sir. Yes, and um, 
the the the, the part that I've never heard anybody ever say anything about uh, Thursday beforehand. Um, everybody, as we showed up to work, we were brought in and given a special briefing. Um, and tell that if there's any calls or anything about Salman Rushdie, how to contact a security right, right away. Um, the the airline was informed that something was going on. We didn't know exactly what it was, but uh, everybody was on you know on notice to make sure that uh, if that happened, to directly get it there. And um, I was sitting right next to the person. That call came in on, and I started monitoring the call and listening to it. And um, wait, what was the Salman yeah. Rushdie component? I mean, Salman Rushdie was the author. He still 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 is the author of the Satanic Verses. And I know that the uh, mullahs in Tehran had put out a price on his head, stretching back for right. decades. But what what did that have to do with this? Uh, the Thursday before nine eleven happened, um, the airline had a threat assessment, and uh, everybody in the airline was briefed that uh, if anything came through about Salman Rushdie to get it to A. Okay, okay. So that's, this was, this was pre-9-11 threat reporting. This is pre-9-11, right. And uh, so we knew something was up. Nobody had any idea of the magnitude of what would happen, but um, it was just one of the most scary things that... Uh, so, and so you were there and you heard that first, that you had a, a, a uh, flight attendant on the line and heard the impact Yes, sir. Well, we, we everything just went, went right. Went, I mean, but you, you were there for the moment. I mean, you could tell what happened, the moment of impact. Yes. My God. Uh, what were the next? I mean, what what was the next? What were the next few minutes like? What was what was everyone at American Airlines? I assume they were just on the line trying to get the FBI and. Oh, every, everybody was just in shock. Uh, uh, Nidia, Nidia, who was the um, uh, she was the uh, communication director there. She was. You hear her voice on quite a few things uh, from that, but uh, we were just trying to get everything together. Uh, once the news got out that the planes crashed, the phones went dead, there was nothing going in. Um, I was on what's called the care team, uh, where we helped get families to the loved ones, and uh, such a nightmare. Uh, were you were you concerned at that time? Do you remember thinking that that we know that there were there were three planes, but it, there could have been ten? Yeah, there was a, there's, you know, there's a, a lot of things that um, have not come out uh, where people have, um, you know, with Northwest was one of them, who actually, um, as they did their um, searches in, in Memphis when they landed the planes, um, they uh, had found some box cutters in the plane. Uh, but that, uh, you never heard anything about that because it never really, never really, really made it out there. Um but uh, huh. it, it was uh, just one absolutely terrible day, and it's just to myself right now, it's hard to talk about still. I hear you. Years. I hear you. Well, Scott, I appreciate you sharing your recollection, and it gives um, more of a it gives a perspective that, that I had not heard before. And um, thank you very much for your call and uh, shield time, and keep your chin up. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go into a break here. In the next hour, we're gonna. I know we've cut. We've got a lot of things to get to today on the show, um, and I, I think we're going to go into uh, Irma and politics, and then, although I, I don't have that much to say on Irma other than some of the political angles um, about this. I mean, I, I, I'm not a meteorologist, and, and I certainly can't even pretend on, on radio to have any background in that, but we'll we'll get to some updates on it as well as 
the political discussion surrounding it. Uh, we have Ben Shapiro talking about his upcoming speech at Berkeley in the next hour. We also have uh, Michael Goodwin joining to talk about this moment in the Trump administration. And then third hour, we'll get into Bannon, Hillary, and uh, some reminiscences that I had recently from Los Angeles for my trip over the weekend. So a lot, a lot happening here on the show. Um, 844-900-BUCK. I will always believe that I and many others in our nation's capital were able to go home that day to hug our families because of the courage and selflessness of the heroes of Flight 93. The heroes of Flight 93. Uh, there you had... Vice President Pence talking about um, those who stormed the cockpit on Flight 93, and it was then taken down by the hijackers in that field in Pennsylvania, among them uh, Todd Beamer, known for saying, let's roll, after they had gathered together passengers to try and retake that plane. Uh, like like so much, when there is tragedy, uh, there is also uh, that which illuminates the best side of, of humanity. We saw this with the response in Houston uh, to the hurricane and uh, the response from, from neighbors, from people all across the country, and from first responders, law enforcement, emergency personnel. And we also saw the responses on the day on 9-11 from people as well as then in the war against radical Islam or Islamofascism from members of our armed forces, intelligence community, law enforcement, and just people like Todd Beamer, everyday, everyday uh, Americans who refuse to go quietly in the fight against evil. Um, so there, there were certainly aspects of uh, of that day that we remember as moments of of heroism. I mean, it's it's difficult in the midst of such a great and tragic loss of life. And as, as a native New Yorker, um, I had friends who lost family members. Uh, my high school, in fact, uh, had many alumni who were Kenner Fitzgerald. Uh, were at Cannon Fitzgerald, which lost um, the largest number of people. And then there were also, there was the, uh, the unity that came from all of us. Donald Trump spoke to it uh, today, um, which is another, again, looking at the aspects of this that had a, uh, you try to find the positive in the, in the darkest moments or in, in the darkest days. And here's what Trump had to say about it. America does not bend. We do not waver. And we will never, ever yield. So here at this memorial, with hearts both sad and determined, we honor every hero who keeps us safe and free. And we pledge to work together, to fight together, and to overcome together every enemy and obstacle that's ever in our path. A sense of uh, unified purpose existed in those days after uh, 9-11 that I don't know if it has ever uh, ever been certainly replicated in, in my lifetime and uh, I do also recall that there were some who uh, were exposed in in a way that has stayed with me forever I mean there were some 
of my fellow Americans. In fact, there were some people on my campus who immediately took the position, and they were leftists, uh, they were progressives. Some of them took the position that day that I will never forget, uh, including a professor who said that this is what happens when people, when you make people angry. That was what he said in front of the whole school. And as much as 9-11 had an impact on my my, my vocation, my career choices, and, and led me to the CIA, the first job, my first choice job out of college, um, it also was a reminder, one that I have never forgotten, of the existence of an ideology that is in this country uh, that always blames America, always finds a way to put America down, and in fact, even in our moment of great peril and great need, there was not a complete American unity. There were some who were taking the completely disgraceful position that this was the chickens coming home to roost. This was the result of U.S. foreign policy abroad. And they were on the left, my friends. Don't forget that either. Buck Sexton here with your team. Hurricane Irma made uh, landfall over the weekend, as was expected. And uh, I think it's a fair assessment to say that it, it was a very serious storm with enormous financial and, uh, well, enormous impacts across the board. Um, But it could have been worse because it did not make immediate landfall with Miami. It shifted west and the trajectory of uh, the hurricane changed a bit. You have much of the state of Florida without power right now, which is in and of itself very distressing, and a lot of Florida in a state of uh, flooding. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that still needs to be addressed here. There's uh, millions of people who don't have electricity and may not have it for quite some time. You had tropical storm force winds extending for over 400 miles all the way up into the Carolinas. Here's what the FEMA, uh, FEMA administrator Brock Long says about where we are right now. So, Clearly, the event's not over. In some cases, the back side of the storm, the, the east side of the storm, is pushing water into parts of Jacksonville, Florida, and up the coast uh, of Georgia and South Carolina today. Uh, we're also anticipating a lot of inland rainfall in, in, in Georgia, so the event's not over. But overnight, as we uh, you know work with our state and local partners to conduct impact assessments, obviously Monroe County and the Keys, uh, Collier County um, took the brunt of the hit with the uh, with the storm surge that was there. And how, how many people do you have in shelters in the state of Florida? Uh, the last I checked, it was well over 200,000. It's hard for me to keep up with all the numbers uh, right now because it's a moving target, but it was over 200,000. I believe we ne- we had nearly uh, nearly 6 million without power as we anticipated. So it's going to be a long, frustrating uh, event for, for Floridians. Florida has been through a lot of rough storms in the past, and so I, I think what we've seen is that the preparations that have been made and that were made and the uh, efforts of local authorities in Florida to, and as well as federal government coming in and helping to do everything they can for the evacuation and just making sure that everything that can be done was done to limit the destruction, certainly to limit first and foremost loss of life. 
Um, and you know, Florida is a, is a state that knows what it is to be in the midst of a hurricane. So they they prepared, they took it seriously, and as I said, I think when you add in that it could have been the storm could have been a worse storm, and also Floridians were as well prepared for it as anyone could have expected. Um, this looks like it will be a, a situation that, while painful and difficult, expensive, frustrating, um, and in some cases heartbreaking for those who have lost homes or their homes have been completely flooded out, um, uh, F- Florida will be back. Florida will manage. Florida is going to make it through this, uh, and I think it, it could have been a bit worse. Um, before I switch on to the political angle of this, there's one more there's one more part of this whole story that it just, hey man, it just it, it just upsets me. And I understand this that first priority always any natural disaster, human beings, human lives. But I'm also somebody who really loves dogs, and I I know that there would be some out there, some ethicists who would say that you know my emotional attachment to dogs as somebody who you know, eats cows and and pigs. You know, my emotional attachment to dogs is somehow, I don't care. They can do all this, you know, cycle babble nonsense about this they want. I love dogs, and I think there's a special human-dog connection. And that's why when I see these stories about dog owners who leave, yeah, Ty and Amy are are with me on this, uh, leave their dogs behind to just be terrified and slowly drown. I mean, what the heck is wrong with these people? You know, I, w- w- in in what universe can you not take your dog with you when you're evacuating, or at least, at least, take the dog somewhere where it's going to have a good shot of surviving the storm? When you're in a in a, in a flood zone and you tie your dog to a tree, you're ensuring the dog is going to one be terrified and left alone and i mean i can't even i can't even finish the sentences here and i am not somebody who except in very limited circumstances advocates violence but i it's a good thing i didn't see you know i'm not in florida i didn't see one of these dog owners tying a dog up to a tree to just you know leave leave him or her behind Clearly, the state of Florida agrees with me on some level because they're considering, as as they well should, I think they should make an example of people here. They're considering pressing felony animal cruelty charges against those who left their dogs behind. Now, look, I understand now there's probably some circumstances where, you know, if if a if an elderly person was whether we're talking about Houston or Florida, we've had you know Texas or Florida recently with these natural disasters. They're medivaced out and, and, you know, they, they forgot or they couldn't or uh, there are extraneous or or um, not extraneous. There are uh, circumstances that are beyond what we could expect that, OK, fine. But we're talking about people that were tying their dogs up in many cases where they clearly just didn't care. I, I, you know, they, they didn't wouldn't even take the dog to a shelter. Weren't even weren't even willing to do that, you know. Weren't even willing to try and save the dog. You had dozens of them uh, here in this USA Today piece are meeting abandoned and just what the what the heck is wrong with people? You know, I, I've always been a a believer in 
you see the way someone treats a dog, you pretty much know everything you need to know about that person. And you see the way a society treats dogs, and you know everything you need to know about that place. Look at countries around the world where they're mean to dogs. These are not countries you want to spend time in. It's just the truth. These are countries that have all kinds of problems. Look at countries where they, I mean, you know, where they at least treat dogs with respect, if not a deep and, and abiding affection for centuries, right? Those are not countries. Those are countries that you want to spend time in. Right? The countries where they are, they mistreat dogs, where dogs are uh, routinely uh, abused and treated as some kind of vermin, which there are a whole lot of countries where that is the case. Many of you who have traveled know exactly what I'm talking about. It, it's really a litmus test. It's all you have to know. It's all you have to know about a person. Do they mistreat dogs? Even if they don't really like them, but would they ever mistreat an animal like that? You know, when they're angry, do they kick at the dog? Do they uh, take it out on the dog? That's People are always next, by the way. It, it always starts with animals, and then people are next. So don't think that someone can just be cruel to animals, and then you know human beings are going to be really nice to. You, know, you see this, by the way. The, the, the mullahs in Tehran are well-known for going around, and unless your dog has a service or a work purpose... You know, guard dog attacking people, things like that. It, if your dog is just a dog that you have, they'll they'll take it away from you. This is this is uh, the case in Iran. They don't like they don't like dogs. A lot of other countries where uh, that's the case too in that part of the world. But I digress. Anyway, I, I know that the for the millions of people without power who've lost their homes that I'm sitting here talking about dogs. But it just you know, come on, what is what is wrong with people? These are family pets. You can leave your pet behind? Tied to a tree? What kind of a, what kind of, you know, who's the animal? You know, that's what I want to know. It feels like the the dog is the more evolved one in this situation. People just, anyway, it's, uh, and I I know that this is a, in the the grand scheme of things, this was an issue. It just, it just caught my attention. It really, it bothered me. It bothers me to see this. Um, and I think that the state of Florida is doing the right thing with it. So, and I just wanted to take that opportunity to tell you all, uh, it's remember this. There are some things that I hope you take away from the show, whether you listen to me once, you listen to me every day for years and years. And those of you who do that, thank you, by the way. Um, but even those who are just popping in for one time and maybe the, you know, not, not going to have time to pop in again soon. We'll say that the dog, the dog test, it's all you need to know about a person and about a country. Is a person kind to is a person kind to dogs? Is a country good to dogs? Fill in the blanks after that, and you know a lot. You know a lot. All right. Um, climate politics. That's uh, on on overdrive right now because of the hurricanes. They're pushing climate change is rooted in emotion, not in science, and that's why they're so desperate to make it seem like it's scientific. So that has meant that in the last few days we've had in the last few weeks really, but. We've had so much just insanity from people on the climate change stuff. We'll get into that and, and more on the other side of the break. Stay with me. We've got Andy in Orlando, Florida calling in. Andy, uh, tell us what's going on down there, man. Thanks for joining us. Well, a whole lot of people are cleaning up. Uh, it's uh, pretty much as soon as the sun came up this morning, everybody got up and pretty much started cleaning a lot of uh, down branches and everything. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of damage other than, uh, you know, a lot of trees down, uh, a lot of branches and debris and stuff related to that. But, um, you know. So how much flooding do you have in your area? 
almost none. Okay. So your area didn't get and hit there, very hard. There, there was a street. I, there was a street I drove through that had you know a pond buildup in it, but no, there wasn't very much flooding at all. Um, Florida is kind of unique in that because it's a very sandy soil. It, generally, it absorbs it absorbs the water pretty quickly, so it doesn't run off. It's very different soil than uh, than what you see in Houston. So. Um, is it fair to say that Governor Scott and and the folks that are tasked with trying to uh, all the way from you know local first responders up to the Coast Guard and FEMA and everybody else, but I mean Governor Scott in particular, sounds like they're they're on top of this and have done a pretty good job. Yeah, they they have done a really good job. Um, one thing I've learned from living here in Florida for forty years doesn't mean I've had a lot of experience with hurricanes because living in Orlando, we've only been hit in the 42 years I've lived here. We've only been hit by four hurricanes and three of them hit in about eight weeks in 2004. So it's not a real common experience in Orlando, but because generally what happens is any storms that come this way tend to get fairly weakened by, uh, you know, crossing over the land. And uh, Irma was very much the same situation. We got hit uh, when Hurricane, when Irma was downgraded from a Cat 2 to a Cat 4, or excuse me, a Cat 2 to a Cat 1, the eye wall, the, uh, the eye fell apart and the eye wall collapsed and it became just a wall. Uh, and that moved through with marginal Cat 1 uh, wind velocities. Um, all right. Quite honestly, any, anything else you want honestly, folks to know while we got you on the air? Uh, we're doing well. Uh, the utility companies are working hard to restore power. I was, uh, my family and I were very fortunate that we didn't have any power outages. Oh, I did want to mention there was one very funny story on the news last night, though. Uh, when they broke to an, they broke to a uh, shelter uh, because uh, a dog had gone into labor. So uh, I thought with the last story that would be uh, okay. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to find I'll have to find that one. But Andy, shield time, man. Stay safe down there. Thank you right. very much for uh, for calling in. Um, speaking of of so, if we're gonna take like a lighter moment, Fox interviewed some guy down in in Florida. They you know they did the man on the street classic thing. Man on the street. You know what? How are, are you getting ready for the hurricane? Are you prepared, sir? Are you? And and they found this guy. I don't think this was a setup. I think they just happened to find. This guy, this was on Fox News before the hurricane had made landfall, might have already hit Key West, because Key West got hit really hard. But this guy was in Miami, and uh, here's how he responded to the question. This point. I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. What do you think about the storm, the power, the ferocity, and the risk to your own safety at this point? Well, at this point, I'm very relieved to discover that as we speak, the eye of the storm is practically due south of us by 220 miles, Okay, because it's crossing the 80th meridian which is uh, 80 degrees west longitude. So I'm not, I'm not so worried because it's so far away and it's bearing as of 8 p.m. Westbound. Well, not just westbound, it was 275 degrees. That's only 115th above due west toward true north. right? So this thing is moving and has been moving in a very westerly direction. And because it's several hundred miles south, the uh, risks are less or less. I'm not right. worried. I don't think it's going to get much worse than what we're seeing right here. Uh, thanks. 
they found like the, the science guy on the street. Did you hear this stuff? I mean, this guy is dropping knowledge left and right. I'm like, wait, he's like 227 degrees north northwest or whatever. I'm like, wow. You know, you know, we just had Andy online too. Andy was speaking with a tremendous uh, insight about weather systems. I'm starting to feel like Floridians know weather the way Californians know freeway systems. You know, no matter where you are in California, all of a sudden, and to SNL's credit, they picked up on this with their sketch. You know, it's take the 101 to the 405 to the, you know, and, and to get on La Brea and then get on, you know, the, I don't know, I can't remember the other names of the streets, you know, Sunset, whatever. Um, but Floridians, like, understand weather in a way that is is pretty remarkable. I mean, from what, from what I'm picking up, I mean, you're hearing people, this guy, I mean, what are the chances they pick this guy on the street? He's like an expertise in this. We just had Andy calling in. He's talking about hurricanes losing strength as they get off of a water system. And, the, you know, we get people, you look where you, you know, you, you, you learn about your region, you know stuff. That's just the way, it makes sense, right? It makes sense. Uh, people in other parts of the world, you know, up up in Minnesota, I'm sure they understand a lot about how to try to avoid being too cold, you know, from serious winter storms. So um, anyway, uh, so you get you get people who are smart on climate issues, and then you get people who are not so smart on climate issues. Jim Acosta over at CNN has decided to go the, go the full on pretend to be a journalist when you're actually a pundit route, right? The, you use the journalist thing for credibility, but use the pundit thing to gain a following. What this is a tried and true tactic. Plenty of people have done it at lots of different news networks. Uh, but I, I mean, I think it's dishonest, right? You either you know either go the I was gonna go the buck route. That's a little grandiose. But you know either go the opinion route and be honest about it, or just the facts. Usually, I should note. We've seen most of the reporting on the hurricanes, most of the reporting on weather, with the exception of the climate change stuff, is pretty straight up and straightforward. So it is possible. It is, in fact, possible for news outlets to not pollute everything that they're talking about with their own political proclivities and biases. It's possible. But then once you get into the climate areas, you see that, oh, no, they will politicize that too and uh, so you got some people are smart on climate like our previous caller and like that guy that fox news bumped into and then some people are kind of dumb on climate and and not just dumb but smarmy and and snide and undermining and just pretend to have knowledge that they don't here's how acosta at a at a press briefing today asked a question about this to an administration official at uh, what is he with fema i think i think he's a fema guy yeah this administration uh, saw a connection between climate change and homeland security and that the frequency and intensity of powerful storms like uh, Harvey and Irma could pose a problem for future administrations. Uh, you could have uh, FEMA budgets uh, that uh, can't keep up with the demand when you have powerful storms hitting uh, the country. Is that something that you think this administration should take a look at? We know the uh, president pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, are these storms giving uh, this administration some pause when it comes to the issue of climate change and homeland security. I mean, this is for they forget. I'm then I'm like blah, 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 I'm freaking out here. They forget about years where we've had no hurricanes. You had Al Gore back in 2006 saying we're going to have you know you know wetter wets and all this stuff and and stormier storms and and it didn't happen for years. And then we have one period of a few bad hurricanes. 
And not only do they just forget about all the evidence, never, I mean, I, I don't have time here for the Bill Maher show's version of climate change. So I might get there tomorrow just because it made me so angry. I saw it. I was in the audience. Uh, but, and then he gets even, he gets snide about it. To follow up on that, when you see three Category 4 hurricanes all on the same map at the same time, does the thought occur to you, geez, you know, maybe maybe there is something to this this climate change thing and its connection to powerful hurricanes? Geez, uh, uh, no, it actually doesn't, Acosta. Uh, you know, maybe there's something to this whole... I mean, this is... That guy... It's like he's playing a character in a, in a movie, and the character is smug but ignorant journalist who's always trying to get his face in front of a, a video camera somewhere. I mean, what does he know about climate? Oh, apparently everything. He's so smart. The worst. He's actually not the worst, but I like to say that anyway. Uh, ben Shapiro, the Berkeley speech coming up. Okay, everybody, you've no doubt seen some of this on social media. You may have heard the great triggering is coming to Berkeley. It is upon us. Ben Shapiro will be speaking soon at Berkeley, and they are having a giant freakout. They're even offering counseling to students who uh, may be worried about or may be subjected to some snippets of this Ben Shapiro speech. We have the man himself with us now on the line. Ben Shapiro, editor-in-chief of TheDailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, and soon to be speaking at the Berkeley campus, assuming all goes according to plan. Ben, thanks for making the time. Hey, how are you? Good. So what's going on here? Oh, who the hell knows? <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, the, the easiest way to describe this is that the Berkeley administration is reluctantly having me because they feel like they have to in order to demonstrate that they're not censoring all forms of dissenting speech. And then they make it difficult to come. And then when I come, they warn their students that it's going to just be the worst thing that ever was. That's that's sort of the easy answer. Here. What, what are the I mean, I know you've written about this up on or you've got a piece on your site, DailyWire.com, about the extreme security measures. What are these extreme security measures for this uh, September 14th? For those who want to know, September 14th speech. I mean, they're pretty radical. They're talking about creating what they call a hard perimeter uh, around the building, which means they're actually shutting down six adjacent buildings, uh, and then they're having cops out in force. I assume a hard perimeter means, you know, metal fencing to prevent people from infiltrating the, the perimeter. Uh, they'll have, I assume, one entrance. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, they, God, Shapiro, it's not like you're in Baghdad. That's insane. It's like they're setting up jersey barriers to prevent VBIEDs from getting in. Yeah, it's pretty nuts. It's pretty nuts. And, and I, I can only assume that that's because they have this outside sphere of Antifa, which makes sense considering that Antifa has basically run the city for the last year. So uh, that, that's pretty astonishing uh, the, the Antifa folks uh, have, they, they shut down the, the upper tier of the auditorium where I was supposed to speak. So it has two tiers. It has the, the floor, the, the ground floor, and then it has balcony. The balcony had about a thousand seats. So we had this thing sold out like immediately. Like there are 3000 people registered for 2000 seat events. And then they cut off the top thousand seats. So there are only a thousand seats available because they were afraid that Antifa was going to infiltrate the top uh, the top tier and rip chairs from their moorings and throw them down on people. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we're not far from, I don't know if you ever watch, and I shouldn't admit this because it's like I'm not American anymore, but if you ever watch international soccer matches, sometimes they'll hold the match in, and if people don't know what's going on, it's kind of eerie. They'll hold the match in a giant empty stadium, and occasionally that's to punish the fans of one team who, if they've acted like soccer hooligans, uh, FIFA will decide, or UEFA, or whoever it is, that there's not going to be any live fans in the stadium, but they don't want to lose the revenue, of course. I think that's first and foremost, but they also don't want to deprive everybody of the 
the right of seeing it. I feel like, you know, they're going to keep trying to whittle this down to the point where your biggest audience is going to be the online audience because at least the online folks can't technically throw anything at you based on where they are. There's always a possibility. So they've made it very difficult to obtain the tickets themselves. You're not allowed to reserve blocks of tickets. You, you can only do it individually, and then you have to show up with ID and pick them up on a one-to-one basis. So you can't even order two. Uh, so it's, it's you know, we'll, we'll pack it anyway. I mean, there will be tremendous overflow. Uh, I, I'm just uh, I'm astonished that there's this much hubbub over a speech from me, considering that I legitimately spoke at Berkeley February 2016. And there were no protesters. Yeah, we're, everyone, we're speaking to Ben Shapiro. He's got a big speech coming up on September 14th uh, at Berkeley. By the way, Ben, there can be no better advertisement, in my mind, for your speech than Berkeley offering counseling services because <laughs> snowflakes are triggered by it. I mean, you can't make you can't pay for this kind of publicity. It's amazing. So congrats on that. That's phenomenal. But what are they so afraid you're... I mean, you're not... I mean, you're not even one of these guys that I know on the right who intentionally says things. If we don't have to name any names, Ben, we'd probably think of some of the same people. But you don't say things just to be inflammatory, right? You actually yeah, want to make an I'm argument, not, and you'll talking. take questions. What are they so afraid you're going to say? Uh, you know, I have a feeling that they, they just assume the, the entire leftist intersectional mentality suggests that your identity is irrevocably and inextricably bound up in your ethnicity. So if you are black, you must be a lefty. And therefore, if I attack leftism, I'm attacking your blackness. Uh, Or if you are transgender, uh, then you must be on the left and you must believe that men can magically become women. And so if I say men can't magically become women, then it's an attack on you as a human. Uh, And therefore, they require counseling. The problem with this, of course, is this is actually what lends it sort of the gas in the tank for folks like Antifa. Because once you say to people that my words are the equivalence of violence requiring counseling, then you're essentially saying that violence can be met with violence. Uh, it's, it's only one step removed. So, you know, as much as Berkeley says they commit, they're committed to free speech, so long as they're committed to an ideology that treats speech as violence, it's not a far cry to actually, you know, responding with violence. I thought it was very interesting. I think it was uh, one of your Daily Wire folks, I think it was Emily Zanotti, wrote a piece uh, on how a bunch of these Antifa guys who have recently been arrested and, and are being prosecuted or being processed are in their 30s. These aren't actually like errant teenagers who are angry at their parents. These are 30-year-olds who are breaking things and hitting people. I mean, it's bad enough for a 20-year-old to do it, but these aren't kids who have left their radical Marxist literature class and now want to act out. These are people who ostensibly should have, like, jobs and families and lives. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. It's Again, I spoke at Berkeley last year, no problem. So I, I really think a lot of these people are outside infiltrators, and I think they're taking advantage of the situation in order to act out. But Berkeley is such a leftist bastion that even the mayor of Berkeley has been kowtowing to them. I mean, he's been saying conservatives shouldn't even show up in our city because it might trigger violence. Well, you know, once you grant the heckler's veto to some of the world's worst people, then you have created essentially a fascist little super state. Do you get the sense that there are any people inside the Berkeley administration, and without naming any names or positions, I'm just wondering, who are, are very sympathetic to you and the cause of conservatism and free speech and feel like this is actually good, that they're sh- that they're, we're holding up the mirror here to the reality of, of a college campus that, for ever, everyone listening already knows this, is supposed to be the birthplace of the campus free speech movement. So there's, there's a tremendous yeah, irony here. Not. Yeah, I mean, I assume there's some, but uh, I haven't heard from any of them. Directly. Oh, I was wondering and if any I, of them were reaching out to you and saying, like, hey, Ben, keep, you know, we, we're rooting for you. None of that so far. Yeah, no, I, I think most of them are, are mostly interested at this point in just keeping their heads down. If I were working there, I probably would be, too. It doesn't seem like a, for, for a safe space, it doesn't seem like a particularly safe space. What's the title? Can you just give us, a, and, I, and I know you, you got a lot going on, so we'll let you go in a second here, but what's the title, and can you give us a little bit of a preview of how you plan this nuclear bomb level triggering? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's legitimately called Fighting Campus Thuggery. That's the name of the lecture. <laughs> and it's all about, you know, how Antifa is destroying free speech, how uh, intersectionality is destroying our capacity to have conversations with each other, how the alt-right uh, is basically a reactionary force that says the same thing as the left, just about white people, uh, and how all of this is rooted in this victim mentality, identity politics that's destroying the country. Do you think the, Dem- do you think the Democrats are realizing that this is not from an electoral perspective, a winning strategy, or you think they're going to double down on all this stuff? I, I think it's split. I, I think even Nancy Pelosi has condemned Antifa. So I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe this event, because because I'm not you know one of these people who's out there just to throw bombs for the sake of throwing bombs, uh, I'm hopeful that, that even the left is going to be fit, forced to face up to the extremism of, of at least part Where of can the people who can't make it in person, Ben, go to watch the speech live? So we should be streaming it online at dailywire.com. So you can go over there and check it out. Fantastic. Ben Shapiro, editor-in-chief of dailywire.com and syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, we always appreciate it, man. Good luck. Stay safe. Thanks a lot. Team, uh, we're going to be going into a break here. I'm going to have uh, Michael Goodwin joining us in in just a few minutes from the New York Post. I I want his take on where we are. Are we at a pivot point? Are we at a a shift here with the Trump presidency? Are, Are things in the midst of of a change for the better? Uh, What can we make of the deal that Donald Trump recently struck with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer? Uh, And then after that, we're going to talk about the Bannon interview. Fascinating stuff there. And I'll give you some of my L.A. trip observations from Los Angeles over the weekend. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. Great to have you here. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. What's going on at this phase, this stage, still early in the game of the Trump presidency, but a lot has already happened. And I think you could say that at a minimum, this White House has endured a lot and is still standing. But what can we expect now that Congress is back in session? We are in the midst of what will be a clearly very busy fall political season. Michael Goodwin's got some answers for us. He's a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. His latest on NewYorkPost.com is we may be witnessing a turning point in the Trump presidency. Michael, great to have you back. Thank you, Buck. Uh, What is this turning point and what is going on, sir? Well, I believe that the short-term deal that the president negotiated largely with the Democrats and which passed very quickly with all Democratic votes and the only no votes were about uh, 100 Republicans in both houses. Uh, I think this signifies that the president is ready to make deals and to get things done. And if Republicans don't want to do it on their own, if they cannot unite themselves to pass uh, the president's agenda, then he's going to do it with Democrats. And look, uh, the result is going to be different than what the Republicans had hoped for when they won the majorities. Uh, He's not going to get uh, Democratic votes, the president, without making serious compromises. And, of course, that will lead many Republicans to vote no against it. It seems to me if they don't like that, they should make a better deal. They should make a better offer to the president. They should get things done. But this idea that somehow they can just take their time and they can all raise their objections. I mean, let's look back at the Obama years. This is not how the Democrats behaved when they had the majority. They stuck together and they got the big things done. The Republicans want to stand on ceremony. They want to argue with each other. Everybody wants perfection. And so they end up getting nothing. So I think the president has made the only decision possible, which is I've got to get things done. Michael, for conservatives who are hearing this and and who are 
uh, aware of what just happened with this Trump budget deal. And I have to say, I, I do recall a few weeks before that there was talk of a government shutdown that was going to happen and there needed to be funding for a wall. That all that did not last very long at all. So people who are conservatives who are hoping for a successful Trump presidency, I think it's fair to say are allowed to have a little bit of uh, concern and trepidation right now. What do you say to them? I mean, can we hope that Trump is turning, that really this this deal with Democrats is to get Republicans to get their act together so that there will be a, a Trump agenda with the conservative aspects of it push through? Or do you really think he's going to go rogue and just start doing things with Democrats that Republicans don't even want to see? Well, look, I I would say, Buck, that if you look back historically, I mean, Ronald Reagan, for example, the most conservative, I think we would say successful president um, in recent memory in in this regard, often had to make compromises to get things done. And his his uh, theory, his his goal that if you if you can only get half of the loaf today, you take that and you come back another day for hope to get the rest. And I think that's the position Trump is in. I think left to his druthers, Trump is a pretty conservative person. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is is a perfect uh, example of that. I think there are others, uh, other judicial nominees moving through the court system or moving into the court system now. But I think the president also has a larger obligation to the American public, and that is to get things done, not to wait for 100%, not to wait for, for perfection. And I think if I were one of those voters who voted for a conservative Republican, and I have in, in many ways my, my own way, uh, then I would say to them, look, you, you've all got to be practical here. You've got to get the best conservative deal you can. But at the end of the day, you have to get a deal. And that's what they have failed to do. Speaking of Michael Goodwin, he's a columnist at the New York Post and Fox News contributor. His latest is up on NewYorkPost.com that we may be witnessing a turning point in the Trump presidency. Michael, what, let's set the table for me right now with what you see likely to happen and what kind of deals we can expect, if not to be struck, at least to be under consideration for the Republican Congress at this stage of the game. I mean, they keep talking about tax reform. You think that's going to happen? Uh, I still hear whis- not whispers, but I still hear people talking about infrastructure a little bit. What are the likeliest areas for there to be movement in the next few months? Well, it, it seems to me that there will be lots of smaller ones, but I, I, I see three big things on the horizon. The first is the DACA, the, the Dreamer situation, which the Democrats are eager to make a deal on. They, they want this. Now, again, and the Repu- some Republicans do, some don't. So I would suspect that President Trump would find a big majority that would not satisfy the most conservative Republican voters. I mean, those who, who, who basically believe the, the Dreamers should be sent back or anything resembling that, I think, would be, would be disappointed. I think the tax reform would follow a similar trajectory. Um, I think that there would be a high, pie, a high price that Trump would have to pay to get Democratic votes for anything like a tax cut. Uh, maybe he can get something out of the Democrats on uh, corporate uh, tax rates and on repatriation of the monies abroad. But I think uh, an overall tax cut bill uh, would be very unlikely to pass muster with a lot of Democrats. So, again, these are both reasons for Republicans to unite to have the strength 
Uh, and then the third element, you mentioned infrastructure. I think that is a place where there can be a broad meeting of minds uh, because the country so clearly needs it, especially after these storms. Uh, I think there's a lot to be done on infrastructure. And it was, uh, if you go way back to the beginning of the Trump uh, uh, election, that was the first thing that popped up as a possible area of cooperation between the parties. But look, Buck, I, I, I am one who believes that our country is better when the parties work together. And that means that nobody gets their way 100%. And I think we've gotten somewhat... Uh, we've forgotten our history because of the Obama years where the Democrats, you know, had the big majorities. They enacted everything in those first two years. Republicans decided, well, we're not going to do that. Republicans had the first the House, then the House and the Senate, and then the White House. And we've come to expect that one party can rule. But that's not something the public has ever really been happy with. The public has generally chosen divided government because because the public in broad terms, is a center-right public. It's not a left, and it's not a, a, a strictly right. So I think it is a mixed electorate, and I think the, if the president can negotiate his way through deals on big items with compromise, I think the public will be, will be happy by and large. One last question for you, Michael, before we let you go. Uh... Is there anything, any one issue that, in your mind, if Trump does not deliver on or changes his mind on, based on what his promises were throughout the campaign, is there any one issue where you could see a substantial defection from within his base, from within the the Trump movement, if you will? Well, look, uh, I I think the economic nationalism that uh, Steve Bannon talked about at length with the Charlie Rose interview is the heart of it. But I think uh, the one aspect of that, a clear aspect, is the wall. If Trump were to suddenly say, no wall, no how, then I think that would be the biggest, the biggest turnabout. And I think that would go to the heart that he is not the president that we elected. Uh, I think that would do it for a lot of people. Short of that, I think if he gave up on tax reform, tax cuts, in other words, if he totally abandons any of the prime pillars of his campaign, then I think he would be in trouble with his base. And so I, but I think the wall is the one that is so specific and so key. There's a lot, look, there's a lot of flexibility on the wall, how big, how high, when. But if he were to say no wall, uh, then I think that would really be crossing swords with his base. Michael Goodwin of the New York Post. Check out his latest on NewYorkPost.com and on Fox News. Michael, great to have you. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Team, hitting a quick break here. We will be talking about that Bannon interview, I should note. And I'll also tell you about uh, my time in California. Because, as it turns out, Buck knows how to party. That's right. I know. Amy and Ty are like, I'm not sure about this. But, hey, we, it, it could be true. It could be. We'll hit a quick break here, team, back in just a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, Team Buck. I, I wanted to talk to you about this 60 Minutes interview over the weekend with Steve Bannon and Charlie Rose, who I don't know when we can decide that it's time for Mr. Charlie Rose to spend the rest of, of his time uh, fly fishing, but for some reason, networks hold him up as, we, we need to have, you know, where's Charlie Rose? You know, we, we need to have Charlie Rose in there to ask the 
basic liberal uh, and, and liberal prejudiced questions about different things going on in the world. So Bannon has never done a TV interview like this before. Steve Bannon, who was the former chairman of Breitbart and then senior Trump campaign official and then senior Trump advisor in the White House. And I got to tell you, if you did not get a chance, I'm going to walk you through some of the most important moments from that interview now. Uh, but if you did not have the opportunity over the weekend, if you had other things going on, I would recommend that you take the 20 minutes for that main interview because they cut it in their additional segments too. But go back and watch it because it's a really interesting, no matter what you think of Bannon, and I know there are plenty of people who don't just dislike Bannon, but he, he filled the Dick Cheney role in this administration early on as the single most hated by liberals, the single most hated administration official. I mean, they, they couldn't even, I'm not going to lie, he's a guy who you could probably come up with a lot of funny ways to lampoon him. I mean, he does show up for you know White House meetings looking like somebody who slept on a park bench under a blanket of newspapers. I mean, you know, I could do this all day. But instead, they just went with, he's the Grim Reaper on Saturday Night Live. Like, he's the one who kills everyone. I mean, that's... That's just, it's not funny, it's not clever, but he, he, in a sense, overrode the system. Like, they can't, they hate him so much, they can't even articulate the hatred for Bannon. But in this interview, there were some very, very interesting moments. Um, first, let, let's start with the notion that Russia, Russia collusion, because you knew this was going to come up. Where did it all go, by the way? Haven't seen much in the way of stories on this. For a while, I, I should note that I think that the entire narrative was constructed with the Trump Tower meeting with Donald Jr. and the other campaign officials, you know, uh, Manafort and company, uh, Jared Kushner. I think that the Times knew that they had that and they were going to pull that one out at the right moment and they were going to just do a drip, drip, drip leading up to it to create back maximum impact. But here we are. No one's been not only no one's been uh indicted for anything no one has even yet figured out what crime could theoretically be prosecuted here or one could be prosecuted for in the in the first place so but but i just wanted to get his take on the russia thing because i think that this is the way that we need to be discussing this from here on out no mincing words no half measures this russia stuff is just a pile of crap there's nothing to the Russia investigation. It's a waste of time. What do you believe? You know what the national security institutions believe. What do you believe? What do you mean what they believe? We, we don't really, I mean, that there may have been, I, I think, we, look, we I was no, no, there. No, 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 it's a total you, and complete farce. Russian collusion is a farce. It is a farce. Bannon nails it. He's totally right on this. And I think that some of the other areas of policy, I would actually have, I have disputes with Bannon. Uh, I, I don't know him. I, I feel like I, I wish I had had some interactions with him in the past. I have friends who, uh, both past and, and present, work at Breitbart. And um, not, I'm not always open about where I have friends in this business because I, I like to know what I know without people knowing how much I know about what's going on behind the scenes. Once an intelligence officer, in a sense, always an intelligence officer, uh, in my case. But, uh, you know, this is an instance where I have to say, I wish I had had some personal interaction with Bannon, just to give you that additional 
sense of you know who, who is this guy you know and what, what is his what is his deal <laughs> right what, what is he all about because there's such vehement uh opinions on him one side and the other but russia collusion is a farce and charlie rose in classic manhattan elitist liberal style launches in a well but what about the intelligence community assessment of the Okay, let's just let's concede for a moment. It's like climate change. Con- concede the point that they use as their Trojan horse for everything else, right? Concede the wedge, but don't let the rest of it follow. Okay, sure. Yeah, Russia wanted to do something. You know what? There was there was voter fraud in the last election. There was. That's a fact. That's a factual statement. How much? I don't know. But that's don't don't let them get past that first statement. Say, well, you know, there was voter fraud in the last election too. So by the Standard set for Russia uh, interference in the election, which is that anything done online by the Russian government or a subsidiary or agents of the Russian government or whatever is evidence that the election was um, not legit, that it was an illegitimate presidential contest. The same could be said of voter fraud in every election. So in, so in essence, no democratic contest in this country could be considered legitimate because someone's cheated and we don't know how much. Well, do you, do you think that there was voter fraud? Actually, some liberals will say, well, there is no such thing as voter fraud. And I mean liberals who have their own shows on MSNBC. And then you pull up a Google search and go, well, someone just went to prison for it, so I'm pretty sure it's a thing. And they say, okay, well, there's not that much of it. But you'll notice that that's the game they play with Russia collusion. Russia wanted to do something, tried to do something about the election, therefore the election is illegitimate. That does not follow. A does not, or, or B does not follow A. A does not follow B. B does not follow A there. That's uh, not, not a, a fair way to set this up, but they don't want to be fair. They just want to take down the presidency. But this, the, the single most important prediction, there are some other interesting things that he said, other assessments that Bannon had, which I will get to. But I thought the single most important prediction that he made, and largely because I I agree with him, and you're seeing this shift happen away from the Clinton alleged centrist, alleged technocrat, Democrat figurehead to something else that there, I think, is a recognition in the corridors of power of the Democrat Party that the only way to combat Trump's populism is not with Lots of journalists saying, oh, my gosh, he's such a meanie, but is going to be with a different version of populism. Bannon said so much. And they're trying to revert that. They're trying to get the identity politics out. They're trying to run. The only question before us, is it going to be a left wing populism or a right wing populism? And that is the question that will be answered in 2020. I think he's probably right. Now, 2020 is a long ways away. Everything that I say to you today about what could happen in 2020 could be completely derailed by a major financial crisis, which not to be that guy, but I spent some time over the weekend doing research because this is this is what I do. And I'll tell you more about where I was doing this research in a few minutes, uh, but researching a history of uh, credit bubbles, asset bubbles, uh, money, paper money, where it comes from, just to really try to understand the nuts and bolts of this. And here's what I can tell you. Every time in the past a government has played the kinds of games that our government is currently playing with its currency, it has ended in disaster. It doesn't necessarily result in massive war or the dissolution of the very state that set up that financial system, but a lot of pain and sometimes 
major war. So 2020, a long ways off. But based on the political trajectories that we can identify that you and I are aware of right now, it's not going to be Hillary, well, I was going to say 2.0, but it'd really be Hillary 9.0. I mean, it would have to be how many iterations of Hillary can you go through it? But um, her version of the Democrat Party, uh, which is really, it worked with Obama because of Obama. Obama as the centrist, Obama as the post, remember, he didn't run as a hardline ideologue. He ran as a post-partisan American politician. He ran as a uniter with a compelling personal story, and yes, uh, compared to Hillary, a an unbelievable amount of charisma and magnetism. I think it was uh, over. I think that was overestimated in the media, of course. But I do think that Hillary, uh, compared to Obama, is a useful comparison to see that if you had had somebody with Obama's personal political gifts, it would have been a very different election. I think this time around and. This is that's a pretty obvious statement, but the defeat of Trumpism is not likely to come from more of the same from the Democrats. Hardline identity politics, transgender rights as the new civil rights struggle. That's not going to do it. That's not going to work. What could work for the Democrats is a Bernie Sanders style, compassionate, big government socialism. But that's what could work for them. Because the ideologues, the leftist ideologues, are already along with the Democrat Party, no matter what, to get that center, to get Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, to go, to flip back to D from R, to flip back from Trumpism to the Democratic Party, which was their assumed home, keep in mind, until this most recent election. Uh, For that to happen, they will have to have somebody who takes a Sanders-esque approach, but also has more of a, shall we say, au courant in the moment, more of the zeitgeist, more of a present political appeal, a more gifted individual politician with a Sanders message from the left. If they want to win against Trump coming up, I think Bannon's right. I think that's what it will have to be. And this will be a a discussion we'll continue with. But uh, for today, I want to get into the firing of Comey. Uh, more, Bannon had some interesting things to say on this. We'll be back with that and more. Stay with me. Someone said to me that you described the firing of James Comey. You're a student of history as the biggest mistake in political history. That would be sure. probably, that'd probably be too bombastic even for me, but maybe modern political history. So, the firing of James Comey was the biggest mistake in modern political history. If you're saying that that's associated with me, then I'll I'll leave it at that. Strong words from former senior advisor to President Trump, Steve Bannon, who is uh, making making the case, made the case on 60 Minutes that it was a disastrous decision to fire James Comey. So we have to assume because that's his position that one, he didn't recommend or at least he wants us to believe that he didn't recommend it. Who really knows? That there are others in the White House right now, and some names come to mind, but others in the White House who clearly were in favor of firing James Comey, and that this could be a mistake that doesn't just haunt the administration of President Trump, but that hobbles it, that this could be uh, the 
wrench in the gears. This could really not just slow things down, but perhaps even bring them to a screeching halt. I have to say, I, I agree. I think that the, uh, well, whatever led, see, what I should say is I, I agree with the notion that however they ended up with a special counsel, they needed to avoid that at all costs. Because the special counsel, even if no charges are brought against anyone, which I find unlikely, I think that they will, in order to quiet the howling critics out there of the administration, and just because they're all going to want everyone who's tied in with the special counsel investigation is going to be looking for jobs after this. This is a temporary setup, right? Whether they're looking for jobs in the government or outside of the government, the perception of it will very much be driven by whether there are prosecutions or not. So if there's no one who actually gets frog marched out of their office in handcuffs as a result of this, it will seem as though it was to everyone on the left, at least, to all the Democrats, to people who unfortunately have a lot of power, not just in our media, but in our culture and in business at large, it will be a uh, it will be evidence on its face that this was a waste. And that the job wasn't really done. So they're going to try to prosecute someone. But even if I'm wrong on that, even if they don't find anything against... And Manafort's the one that I would assume is most likely to run afoul of the federal authorities in this regard. I think that they're they're looking to get him. And he's had enough international business dealings where... I, I don't know about his... I don't know enough about his dealings to, to know whether or not there's any criminality. But I know that... A really good prosecutor, you know, that old adage about how a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. It's unfortunate and it's true. And that may happen there. So the series of events that led to the appointment of a special counsel was, in fact, disastrous for this administration. And I and you can go back and listen to the show. I was saying no special counsel. No, 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 no. Not OK. Not acceptable. Do not do this. And uh, I think that that was a massive mistake from inside of uh, DOJ, and I think that the Trump administration should have uh, done everything in its power to avoid this, but it is now, as they say, what it is. Um, so that's one aspect of, of Bannon's interview, and maybe tomorrow, I'm going to put this on hold for now, because I don't have enough time, because I've also uh, got to get to we're going to get into the, the Hillary discussion here in a moment, but I think tomorrow on China and trade war and what that people throw this around and they're also throwing out the term economic nationalism. What does that really mean? I understand in the broad strokes because we all can repeat, we can regurgitate what's said. You know, economic nationalism is taking care of your own. It's securing your borders. It's dealing with your own manufacturing and industrial base first and making sure that there's no unfair business practices abroad. And that all sounds good. How does it work out in practice? And also, how effective would it really be? I think those are critical areas of discussion. What would a, what would a trade war with China mean for you and me? Bannon talked about that in the interview. Like I said, I know I don't have that clip right now, but I want to get to it. So maybe I'll put that in the hopper. Uh, so to speak, for tomorrow, because we throw around these terms like, well, we're going to have a trade war with China. And that that could be uh, a, a disruption that you and I feel in our day to day lives in uh, in economic ways. Right? And also, there are those who have the concern, understandably so, that trade wars lead to real wars. And 
any kind of armed conflict with China is a nightmare. It's not something we would ever want. I don't believe the Chinese would want it either. But And I, I think this might be because I've been reading uh, The Ascent of Money is the, is the book that I, I actually read it and finished it over the weekend by uh, Neil Ferguson. And it's it's a, interesting. It's a little dense in places. He gets a little he gets quite a bit into, you know, the origins of uh, of the bond market. And he starts doing bond math. And, you know, when the uh, when the coupon is this and the coupon is that. And it's a, if you're not a finance person, you're kind of like, all right. But some of the the broad themes that governments get involved in these macroeconomic situations and that they often result in poor management, poor decision-making that have enormous consequences for the country, in some cases for the whole world, depends on which situation uh, specifically we're getting into. But you know, how many people know about the, uh, the hyperinflations that existed before the 20th century? How many people know where the worst hyperinflations have occurred? If I ask people to talk about why Argentina went from being at the turn of the 20th century, the fifth wealthiest per capita country in the world to a country that has hyperinflation. These are, I'm getting a bit a bit off track on that for right now, but the point here is that the economic concerns, the economic discussion is a complicated one, but it's an important one. And just the talking points are not sufficient. So I will return to this because that was one of the parts of the Bannon interview, the tra- a possible trade war with China and Bannon advocating that we are already in the middle of one. It's just a one-sided fight. We need to unpack that more. And, I, and this is an area I'm going to be researching. I want to learn. And I, those of you who have a background or an interest in this and you just have a lot of thought, I, I want to hear what you have to say on this because uh, there's there's a lot of so-called expertise out there that isn't so. One more thing that Bannon said that was really, really worthwhile uh, to hear. His very first would... speech when she came off the beach was nonsense. And this goes to something I, I want to address with you. Hillary Clinton's not very bright. Everybody says she's so smart, so much smarter than Donald Trump. What happened? Why are you so mean? Uh, Hillary Clinton's not bright, he says. I think that's too far. That's unfair. I think she's, you know, like a B-plus Wellesley student. Like, who really cares? I mean, she is fine, right? But nothing, nothing really blowing anybody's socks off on the academic intellectual front. But we were told she's a genius. We were told she's she's second only in intellect and, and her prowess of genius to Barack Obama as a politician. And it's based on what? What has she ever done that was impressive? In fact, she has a long history of intellectual and ethical failures. So, Hillary, not so bright, he says. Ooh, he really is a street fighter. We'll talk more about Hillary in just a few minutes. I'll tell you what happened if you stay with me. I had not drafted a concession speech. <laughs> I've been working on a victory speech. <laughs> I was drafting a victory speech. So Hillary's out there now in uh, as part of her what happened tour, and she is she, she is. Really not helping the the Clinton brand, I think, with this continued tour and all these efforts and everything that she's got going on here. Um, but she, sure enough, is out there telling people that she did not even draft a concession speech. She was uh, so assured of victory that the prospect of defeat just didn't even really enter into her thinking. And all that stuff, I mean, go back, go back to election night. Do you remember? I was here in New York City. 
I didn't even go down to Dallas because the Blaze didn't think that it was going to be a long night. And the assumption was that Hillary was going to win because everyone in the media, more or less, was assuming that Hillary was going to win. And there was this campaign, uh, not the campaign headquarters, there was this victory party that was planned here at the Javits Convention Center in Manhattan. And I just wish I had gone over there because I, I heard that it was like entering a mausoleum once it was clear that Hillary was going to lose. Everyone had already gathered for the party. They weren't gathered in anticipation of a result. They were gathered to celebrate. And sure enough, there was not much for the Hillary supporters to get excited about that night. Um, but here you have her admitting this. I mean, so when we look back and talk about how entitled she seemed and how Hillary was in every way just a, a, of the impression that, you know, the the presidency was hers. Mine, mine for the taking. No, but really that that the presidency was something owed to her as though Barack Obama had cut her in line and now it was her turn. And it was really her turn the first time around, but she was willing to be the bigger, more gracious person by letting us, letting the American people have her as president after we had had Barack Obama for eight years. You know, she's so thoughtful. She's so considerate. And you see that the themes that we had around Hillary were true. This notion that, yes, in fact, she was somebody who was disconnected from voters. Yes, she did expect to win. She expected to win the presidency. Just just let's all take a moment to put this in the proper context. She expected to win the presidency, despite the fact, rather, that she was under investigation for legitimately violating classified protocols over 100 times. She thought she was going to win anyway. There was no way she wasn't going to win. In fact, and they didn't bring this up in the interview. Here's a report from just a couple days ago. Hillary Clinton bought the house next door to her Chappaqua home. Oh, and here's what I find so interesting about this. She bought it for White House staff and Secret Service. She bought a million dollar in Chappaqua, that's just a house, not a mansion, but a very expensive. She bought a million-dollar home next to her home in Chappaqua before the election results were in, many, many months before the election, because she wanted to make sure that there was ample room nearby for what was going to be a substantial White House staff and also Secret Service protection, which would be even more substantial if she were the president than a, than a former First Lady, as you, as you know, and keep this in mind, President Clinton and former President Clinton, pardon me, and uh, Hillary Clinton, the former First Lady, both have lifelong Secret Service protection. They have uh, security and car service provided to them courtesy of the taxpayer forever. Uh, I disagree with that. I think that there could be some basic security measures in place for former President and former First Lady, but, you know, it should, like, sunset after 10 or 20 years. Nobody cares where Jimmy Carter is anymore, you know? No one cares. No one gives a, no one gives a, you know what, uh, what, you know, former president such and such is up to, really. I mean, that, that's just, for a period of time, I understand there's a level of national security concern with having a former president 
who is out there and could be kidnapped and forced to divulge information. I, I understand that. But we're talking about on U.S. soil here, everybody. You got to have a, a huge Secret Service detail for the rest of your life for, for decades to come. I just think that's, you know, let, let's give former presidents, uh, you know, maybe a, a hotline number to the Secret Service. And if they want it, they could get like a concealed carry permit and call it a day. I, I'm sorry. You know, it's just I think it's excessive. We have we have accepted all the trappings of this imperial presidency. But anyway, back to back to Queen Hillary which is what she really thought she was. She's now on this book tour, and Democrats, I can tell, um, for purposes of just their own political fortunes, are stepping away from her. That Hillary is still a bit of a toxic brand. Hillary is not ever going to make the comeback that I think she thinks she can make. And that's perhaps why she is free to divulge information like the following. Went into a frenzy of closet cleaning and long walks in the woods and playing with my dogs and yoga, alternate nostril breathing, which I highly recommend, trying to calm myself down and, uh, you know, my share of Chardonnay. It was What happened was I drank a lot of Chardonnay. Uh, here she is. Yoga. Hillary doing yoga. I mean, there's nobody, nobody wants to think about Hillary's yoga practice, but she's sharing all this information about her. I should note that I think that if she had taken this more humble and uh, more identifiably human approach to running for election, she would have done much better. In fact, in many ways, Trump was not just the anti-Hillary on policy, but also in style. On the one hand, you had this guy who's out there who's just saying whatever, and he's saying a lot of stuff. And I always gave Trump credit for this, and I continue to, but even early on when I, I wasn't sure that he could win, uh, far from being sure, I really thought it was unlikely, but you know, I was wrong. A lot of people were wrong on that one. Um, I did support him, however. You'll notice a lot of conservatives out there who are never Trump. Oh, I've signed my name to never Trump. I'm never, never, ever Trump. And now that he's president, they're like, yeah, I support Trump. And it's, you know, you can make that transition if you want to, but I just think it's important to note that never should mean never. And this is why you should say never, never. Uh, it's not a good idea. I know I just ran in a rhetorical circle there, but back to the issue at hand here. So you had Trump who was so outside of the dictates of traditional conventional politician style. Then you had Hillary who, yeah, she would give these shrill speeches, but she was so controlled. They wouldn't let her talk to the press, really, because they were so worried, because they thought maybe she'd be sitting there and they'd ask her a question. All of a sudden, she'd say, what happened? And everyone would say, oh, my gosh, I do not want this person to be president of the United States. It was all a facade. It was all a front. It was a branding exercise via the media and the Democrat Party, which is one and the same. And now we get a little bit more of the truth as Hillary of course, is the one who is portraying it. But you can read between the lines here. And as I was saying, she was completely entitled in her own mind to the presidency. She, oh, the media was complicit, I should note, in pretending that that, that, that mansion or million-dollar house in Chappaqua, which is like a, I know some of you are going to not believe, it's like a guest house probably. It's not that big. Uh, but that that house that she bought for a million dollars, the media was reporting on how it was for her children to come visit and her grandchildren. You're going to tell me that no one ever really thought to ask or no one ever put together that maybe this was actually so that they could create White House North in Chappaqua? 
that there would be this uh, that this would be the the headquarters of the Hillary dynasty of the Clinton dynasty and that that's what that house was all about. Come on, media couldn't figure that out. I I don't think so, my friends. I don't I don't buy that for one second. Uh, so here we are learning more about what happened from Hillary herself and from what we see in here. It's exactly what we thought. Now it's just being confirmed. And it should surprise absolutely no one that, in retrospect, Hillary lost because there was no real reason for Hillary to win based on who she was as a candidate. It was all just put together for her. It was all the king's horses and all the king's men carrying her to victory. And it wasn't enough. I'm going to tell you about L.A. and my time there on the flip side of this break. But first, uh, please do download the podcast. I know we didn't have one Friday because I wasn't here in the Freedom Hut, but we will have one every day this week. So uh, please do download and uh, share it with a friend. And also go to BuckSexon.com for news throughout the day and also BuckSexon.com slash store for gear. Be right back with L.A. stories. Welcome back, Team Buck. Uh, I was out in Los Angeles, as uh, you know, if you heard the show on Thursday out there for a few days. Miss Molly had some work stuff to attend to, and I decided to just meet her out there for the weekend for a kind of mini vacation of sorts. Um, and I was out on Friday. That was the mini vacation part of it. And I, I know Brian Suits uh, did a great job standing in. Um, I have to share some thoughts about L.A. I understand how people get seduced by it. The weather is so nice. The food is so good. Uh, it is, from a New Yorker's perspective, much cheaper than New York City in terms of the housing. It's still very expensive, but nothing compared to New York these days. And there are some very interesting cultural things going on in L.A. that I, I noticed. Um, I stayed at a little boutique hotel that uh, was, well, there was quite a bit of a party on the rooftop, pretty much going at all hours and you had really I was sitting there and, and doing a kind of you know study of the native Californicacious metrosexualis uh, there was a a view of California visitors as well as California natives because where I stayed is known to be a staycation location so people go there who are native Los Angel Los Angelinos uh, to just get away for a while, uh, and there are some things that I picked up. As I said, Californicacious metrosexualis. That's my version of an Australian accent from a nature show. Uh, I should note that Aussies are kind of taking over California. I had dinner with my old college roommate Saturday night, who's of course in a band. He's out in LA. And he, his girlfriend is Australian. My other friend out there was also in a band. His girl, he was my, another college roommate of mine. He has an Australian girlfriend. Uh, there are Aussies all over the place, which is a great thing. Aussies are fantastic people. I'm a, I'm a big fan, um, but they are everywhere. Uh, you, you get all these bartenders in L.A. You're like, I might. And you're like, wait a second, what's going on here? Um, but... There's also what had been referred to in the past as uh, people would say that you are a, a metrosexual, which is really just a term for a yuppie uh, that is a hipster. I don't hear that term quite as much anymore, but th there was a, a lot of that. So I was up there on the, 
on the roof of this hotel where they had a pool and it was very European. Uh, you had women who were, I didn't know this. I, I didn't know this when I booked the hotel. Um, there were, it was topless. So women all over the place were disrobing. And so you had ladies who I would guess many of whom worked in the fashion entertainment and or uh, modeling industries who were disrobing. And I was up there with Miss Molly, and she was uh, occasionally either averting my gaze or telling me that she was gazing at me, and I better watch it. Uh, but I was really just trying to mind my own business. I was reading a book about the history of of money. That's how exciting I am when there's a party going on around me. Uh, so there were ladies who were not wearing a lot of clothing. Uh, there was music that you would expect to find in a, a lounge in uh, Mykonos, I think, playing over the speakers. Um, the guys were, this is, a, I guess, the L.A. version of a, of a hipster. They had, one thing I noticed was that a lot of the guys wear a lot of jewelry. Um, they had rope bracelets are very big, so these, these rope bracelets. Uh, they also have big gaudy rings on, and uh, they have scruffy facial hair. These are then this is my this is um, my field assessment of Californicacious metrosexualis. My Aussie accent is it's really hard. Australian accent. Everyone just says you know good day mate, and they think they can do it. And that uh, Aussies are nice people, so they tend to smile. But most Australian accents accents that we all try to do are complete trash. So you got guys with gaudy rings, scruffy facial hair, a lot of vaping, a lot of rope bracelets. And tattoos in particular on the forearm and in the kind of sub-armpit chest area. That's where you get a lot of these guys that have tattoos. I'm just telling you what I noticed. And it was, it was uh, I had quite a sample size of, of dudes up there on the roof. I already told you we had ladies who were, many of them were topless. And, and I was not, I was not with Molly at my side interested in seeing any of that I can tell you because you know I'm sure you know Molly's up there and like oh behaving herself as a lady does and all of a sudden we're seeing all these European types that are going going topless on the roof in LA um there was a thing that it was a thing that happened but the, the so you got these guys tattoos in the forearms big rings um and then just some other things that I I picked up uh avocado do- dominates the menu Avocado is the trendiest food in California by far. And I know it's because that they have access to the fresh produce and this is, but, you know, avocado toast has become a defining, uh, a defining thing for the millennial generation. And there are lots of jokes made about how we spend all of our money on avocado toast. And I always want to respond, well, that's because we can't spend it on housing. Thanks, baby boomers. We can't even get into the housing market. Yeah, that's right. A little bitter. Um, But you get a sense that for the L.A. set, the preferred exercise is yoga uh, and vaping, and maybe not simultaneously, but sometimes. The preferred swimwear is uh, very snug, if there's swimwear at all. Uh, Preferred music is Gypsy Kings and Bob Marley uh, lounge remixes. Uh, The preferred hairstyle is a man bun with a top knot. The preferred employment for the uh, L.A. man is a trust fund or service industry while waiting for the trust fund to come through. Um, political persuasion is ignorant globalist socialist, some combination thereof. 
and the preferred source of news and information, uh, celebrity Instagram accounts. So in this particular place, a lot of the guys that I, I overheard, because it was a small rooftop and people were just having conversations that just come back from, uh, from Burning Man. And for a lot of the ladies, it seemed that their job was uh, a lot of women in their 20s on this rooftop and, and, and this lounge area at this hotel where I was staying in Los Angeles. And their job seemed to be looking good in a bathing suit, traveling and going to parties, which is great work if you can, if you can get it. So those were my L.A. Uh, observations. I have some more. Maybe tomorrow I'll share with you my thoughts about uh, getting a little peek behind the curtain, literally a peek behind the curtain at the Bill Maher show. Um, but I will also tell you that European jet setters lack consideration for the people around them. Lots of smoking, all kinds of stuff uh, right in your face. And also speaking very loudly in foreign languages on their phones. So, but other than that, L.A. is amazing. I got to say, it's a beautiful place. The traffic is as bad as advertised, but everything else is as good as advertised. So I got to say, California knows how to party. And with that, Team Buck, I will, I will bid you adieu. Excited to have you here tomorrow on the Freedom Hut. Until then, shields high.